What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. They're most well-known for their kick-ass fire packs. And if you guys haven't been rocking one, well, you guys are missing out because they make arguably the best and the most comfortable fire line packs out there in the game, period, end of story. But did you also know that they also happen to have a full line of load-bearing essentials? They make everything from essentials for packing a trophy elk off of the hill. If you guys want to go and backpack across Europe, well, they make a solution for that. Hell, they even make briefcases and they even make cool little backpacks. So if you want to throw your civvy gear in there and toss it under the uh, seat in the back of the engine or in the rack in the buggy, well, they make a solution for you there too. They also give back to the community. They have also started the 1039 scholarship fund. Yeah. So if you guys want to go back to school and get some education, well, now's your opportunity. Well, that's coming down the line actually, but look, uh, for more of that coming down the line and uh, also look for the backbone series and that's going to be launching here pretty soon in fact i gotta make a little trip up to old montana to help them out with that so look for that soon if you guys want to find out more go to www.mysteryranch.com and check them out the Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our latest and greatest sponsor. Who is that? Well, it is none other than Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. Speaking of balls, I know you're sitting in the back of the buggy. You're on your way to work and your hand is probably on your on your nuts right now. So yeah, yeah, you're probably thinking about it and you probably need to clean that bush up for dirty August. So do your significant other a favor and go over to www.manscaped.com and check out their perfect package. It comes with the lawnmower 3.0, which is a significant upgrade to the lawnmower 2.0, which I previously had. And I actually stand by these things. They're pretty cool. Uh, the lawnmower 3.0, it has skin safe technology. So you don't nick your nuts while you're trimming your bush, which is pretty cool. Also comes with some, uh, premium anti-chafing deodorant, which is pretty damn cool. It's got a sweet pair of underwear in there and a bunch of other stuff. You guys can get on the manscaped.com. Even their, uh, Shears 2.0, which is pretty cool. It's like a nail kit and uh, they're tough. They're uh, really actually really nice. So yeah, check those out while you're over there. But if you go over to www.manscape.com and check them out and order anything site-wide using the code anchor point, you can get 20% off and free shipping, which is pretty cool. So once again, go over to www.manscaped.com and check out with the code anchor point for 20% off and free shipping. The Anchor Point Podcast is also brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor. Who is that? Well, it is none other than Hotshot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. But besides kick-ass coffee for kick-ass causes, they make a ton of other cool stuff. They even make uh, a bunch of firefighter-themed apparel, which is pretty damn cool. So you can go over there and rep your Dig Lime Bro shirt or your Dirty August shirt, because it's Dirty August. Uh, see what I did there? Besides that, they make the full line of the tools of the trade to get your mortaring started off right. So if you guys are looking for a pour over kit or an arrow press or any of that stuff, go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com. There we go. I had to correct that one. But aside from that and making kick-ass coffee and all the tools of the trade, they also support the Anchor Point podcast by slinging our merch. So if you're looking for one of those Band of Brothers tees or the Fire Fiend tee or some stickers and uh, maybe some more stuff coming down the line, definitely go over to www.hotshopbrewing.com. The Anchor Point Podcast would also like to give a little bit of a shout out to our buddies over at the Ass Movement. Oh, yeah. The tissue issue is a real 
freaking deal. I don't know how many times I've come across it on public lands of people, uh, the problem of people not burying their crap literally or not even or just not throwing away their trash. Yeah, it's 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 got to stop. It's a problem that's pretty big and I, I'm sick of seeing it. But that's why our buddies over at the ass movement have started a little bit of awareness campaign. So if you guys go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement, you can join and assist in raising awareness for this cause. It's pretty cool. Yeah, the ass movement and their uh, true stewards of the land, despite the funny name. And they actually just did a huge giveaway. Actually, that's starting to close. That closed uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. But thank you to everyone who participated in gathering some trash off their public lands and doing their part. We definitely appreciate it. So once again, go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement and give them a follow on Instagram too at the ass movement. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is going to be brought to you by the Smoky Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience. Bethany has an awesome organization over there, and she uh, actually is giving back to the community. She uh, yearly, she does a limited number of $500 grants for you folks in the field that are telling the story of wildland fire, which is pretty damn cool. She's she's teamed up with mystery ranch and water axe pumps to help facilitate that. And I definitely appreciate it. Some of the work that uh, has been coming out of this endeavor is pretty damn cool. Other than that, if you guys go over to the website at www.wildfireexperience.org, you can check out all of the works that are uh, over there. It's kind of like a digital catalog of stories about wildland firefighting that are dating all the way back to the 1940s. There's a collection of over a hundred of them, which is pretty damn cool. So if you guys want a little history lesson or a trip down memory lane, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check them out. Podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Hope everybody's doing well, and uh, I hope everybody's avoiding the tornado warnings coming off of uh, wildland fire incidents these days. Pretty wild stuff. Yeah, nature's pretty metal. Anyways, uh, today on the show, we've got a gentleman by the name of Greg Jones. He's a Canadian smoke jumper and a recent recipient of a Smoky Generation grant. He is a winner of one of the grants, which is pretty damn cool. He's done a lot of work, and he's not only a Canadian smoke jumper, but he also has done some work around the world, which is pretty freaking awesome. Uh, definitely check him out on his Instagram and uh, his his. Instagram 
handle is going to be GS Jonesy. This dude is wild and he's done some pretty wild stuff, especially with his work down in South Africa, which is pretty damn cool. Uh, he went over there and did some training and developments for some uh, wild wildland firefighting crews out of South Africa. And then after that, he was embedded with an anti-poaching task force, which is pretty freaking wild. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our good friend, Greg Jones. Welcome to the Anchor Point. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I've got my good friend, Greg Jones. How's the life up there in uh, Canada, man? How's it going? Oh, it's going well. Uh, not much happening for fires this year. It kind of seems to be the case everywhere. But, uh, you know, that's been nice in its own way, being able to spend a little more time at home and hanging out with friends and family and doing some of that the stuff we don't get to do in the summer. So a different season, but certainly can't complain. Nice, man. Nice. Uh, you guys getting a lot of rain I hear up there. Yeah, it's been crazy. It's, it's been raining pretty well every day. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what to say about anything like it, but it's, uh, yeah, it is what it is. I guess we, we aren't busy on the fire front, but we are busy on a, anyways, it seems no matter what's happening these days, there's always lots going on. So yeah, there's a lot of rain for sure. Yeah, there's yeah. always something to do, man. No, it's cool. So what, now what exactly do you do up there? I know you're a Canadian smoke jumper, but what else do you guys do? Yeah, so I'm, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, I'm with a, we call it pair attack here in Canada. We still use the term smoke jumping, but the official would be pair attack up here. Um, yeah, I've been here in the Mackenzie base for about, oh, I guess this is my seventh season. Yeah, that's kind of it for Mackenzie. Like that uh, takes up a fair bit of our our time. It's a pretty committing job, as you know. Um, in the uh, off seasons, people have lots of different things going on, as any fire program. Like people are all over the place, kind of spread throughout Western Canada or elsewhere in the world. But Mackenzie, we're getting more and more people living here full time, which is pretty cool. It's a pretty sweet little kind of hidden gem of a town. Um, Lots of outdoor stuff, pretty cheap living, which lets you gives you a lot of flexibility for still doing trips and stuff and kind of living the fire lifestyle. So it's been, it's been really good for us up here. Nice. A little, your own little slice of heaven up there, huh? Yeah. Something like that. I mean, some people might raise their eyebrows at that, but we're, uh, we're enjoying it for sure. Nice, man. So, uh, how long have you been in fire? Uh, this is the, I guess going on 10 years now. This is my 10th season. Nice. So I started out in, uh, Alberta did three years over there and then moved over to the jumping program here in BC and I've been here since. Nice, man. Nice. And, uh, as far as like other things that you did, what, like, how did you get into fire? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, it was always kind of on my radar. I, I really couldn't tell you where, um, I guess I got some family that ranches in interior BC and, uh, would spend some time out there with them in the summers and there's always fires going on. So I think that probably planted a bit of a seed and just kind of, getting to be outside in the BC wilderness and seeing those landscapes and kind of doing hard work is something that I grew up around and it always really appealed to me. And this was kind of natural extension of that. Um, I didn't really get into it until actually until I was finished university and my rookie season wasn't until the year after I was done. I did a kinesiology degree in Southern Alberta, which is, uh, 
served me pretty well in fire still, but a little bit of a different path. Uh, not starting fire until I was done being a student, but I think it's worked out really well for me. Let me focus on it pretty well. Nice, man. And do you plan on staying in fire for a while or do you plan on going to kinesiology or what's your future plan? No. Yeah, it's a good question. I'll be, it'll be something along the veins of what I'm doing now. I couldn't tell you exactly what that'll be, but fire, I can honestly say in my 10 years has gotten better every year I've stuck around. So it's, uh, yeah, I don't have plans to go elsewhere, but with that being said, I still, I'll be here as long as it makes sense. And as long as I'm having fun. Nice, man. So that's, that's cool, man. And, uh, I, I've been following you, uh, like I said, a little bit earlier, uh, when we weren't recording, but I've been following you around for a while on your Instagram page and you've got like a hell of a backstory, man. You've gone like international, you've done some work with smoky generation. You've got to go to Normandy and do the Dax over Normandy thing. So yeah, dude, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I've been, I've been really lucky. Um, it's kind of crazy. I remember when I was trying to get on fire, the first year I tracked down like a friend of a friend who'd done it. And, uh, I remember one of the things he said, and yeah, this would be going on 11 years ago now, but it was just like fire is going to pull your life in all these ways you can't even imagine right now. Um, just enjoy it and kind of do good work along the way and let it take you wherever it takes you. And yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> he certainly wasn't wrong. It's, it's kind of gone that way. I, uh, yeah, I didn't really have a big plan. I just knew I loved it and then kind of followed up doing things I was interested in um, and just kind of chased down the rabbit holes that came up. So after my my rookie season, a guy I worked with happened to be from Yellowknife up in the Northwest Territories in Northern Canada. And uh, he'd build ice roads up there for the remote diamond mines. And he, I had, you know, kind of from my farm background, I had a heavy equipment experience and he was able to get me a job and I ended up spending six winters up there building ice roads, which, uh, helped like really like kind of made fire very sustainable for me, kind of having that off season stability, which is pretty awesome. I was really lucky with that. And so it was quite a few years of back and forth between two intense seasons and then fitting in trips and all the little side projects and little side businesses and fun stuff on the side. So yeah, fire has certainly been really good to me and kind of led to a lot of opportunities, facilitated a lot of things I probably wouldn't have been able to do otherwise if I was doing anything else. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool though. It's uh, this whole lifestyle. It's very nomadic, but it also opens up a lot of doors and opportunities for other, you know, other jobs and other cool stuff that you can do. Yeah, it really does. And it's just cool. I'm lucky with all the people I get to work with. Like everyone, everyone I work with is super interesting, has a cool backstory. They all have their different, you know, interests or winter jobs or past jobs or education or master's degrees and PhDs are working on whatever. So I think that's, it's a pretty rare, special thing that you can kind of go all in with a group of people and kind of be all focused on something and kind of get that like the benefits of a career, like committed being all in, but then at the same time shift gears in the off season and focus on other things. I think it, yeah, it's pretty, pretty sweet and pleased to getting to work with a lot of really, really cool people. No, that's awesome, man. I definitely love that, that life. Uh, I'm out of the game now, of course, but yeah, I, I do definitely miss it. That's for sure. So life as a BC smoke jumper, man, what's, what's that like? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, obviously I love it. I'm uh, fairly blocked in and been, yeah, I've been full-time in McKenzie for, well, not full-time working here, but full-time living here for the last couple of years now. And, uh, I mean, if anyone's ever been here, they, um, some people have questions. It's pretty small, pretty remote town, quite a ways from anywhere else, really. We're about 35 
hundred people. And, and, uh, you know, the next biggest city is two hours away. And, um, so, you know, that comes with pros and cons. It's not for everyone, but, uh, so because our program in British Columbia is Northern based, we have our two bases in Fort St. John and McKenzie. Um, some people, some people that's a barrier to working up here, but, uh, both of them are pretty amazing communities in their own way. It's kind of what you make of it with anything. And, uh, it's, it's pretty great. Like I said, like you, we get to do a lot of fun stuff at work every day, um, regardless of fire load or jumping related or not. And, uh, you work with a great group of people and we live in some pretty beautiful communities. Mackenzie's awesome. Kind of in the Rocky mountain trench, just, kind of right on the western slopes of the Rockies and then Fort St. John's across the Rockies out on some beautiful farmlands and great river valleys. The East Country up there is beautiful. So it's, uh, no, it's, I've got nothing but good things to say. It's not for everything and there's a lot of sacrifice, or it's not for everyone, I should say, and there's a lot of sacrifice required to kind of do it properly and make the most of it. But there's a reason we have such a passionate group of people up there doing it. It's pretty special. Oh yeah, man. That's go. That goes. That I guess that sentiment is re- is reflected down here in uh, rural America as well. I mean, there's something kind of like captivating about small town America. I love it, man. I worked in a very yeah. small town uh, up in Oregon. Uh, yeah, and it was it was cool, man. It's different, but uh, it's you can't. It's like unsurpassed beauty. You got fishing, hunting, everything right out your back door. You can just go disappear in the woods if you want to. It's cool. Yeah, it is really cool. And then you get a lot of like just kind of no bullshit people too, which is also very attractive. Like not just in the job, but just in these communities. So yeah, I've uh, I've spent a lot of time in small towns and I, I've spent like I've lived in cities too, but yeah, both the pros and cons. I enjoy both. But uh yeah, Mackenzie's certainly a good place for now. Um and as far as the job, like it's it's pretty awesome just given that smoke jumping does require prior experience. It means that anyone who applies typically has at least an idea of what it's up or, and we attract people who are really passionate and committed and bought in. So just getting to work with kind of older, more mature, more experienced and more committed people is a pretty special thing in fire. Like there's a lot of other programs out there that, uh, you know, they attain that too, but that's, uh, that's one of the perks for sure that I've noticed working here over the years and working with lots of other freezing programs along the way. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole smoke jumping thing, I mean, it's, it's the referred to like the go-to elite firefighting crew, you know, and it's no different in Canada. I mean, from America, basically, I mean, it's this, it's practically the same program. I mean, there's going to be some differences of course. Yeah. Yeah. There's differences for sure. And yeah, the, the whole elite thing's funny too. Cause like the, you know, the jumping is specialized and it is a dangerous job and it's not for everyone. And it, it is pretty gnarly, but the end of the day like it's uh we'll get painted with that elite thing or that people think we think we're elite and really like it's uh there's a good russian saying about it it's like 90 seconds fly like an eagle two weeks dig like a mole and it's uh it's pretty accurate like there's not a lot of glory like i i I don't consider it elite i think it's it's cool that it is relatively coveted so we do attract good applicants but um it's the same job like it's just like anything we have awesome people and we have duds and we have everything in between, like just like any program. And yeah, I think, yeah, you know, you know, a lot of the unit crews and other programs in BC, like they have, they have the same thing. They have great people. So yeah, I think the elite something is something we balk at a little bit, but uh, yeah, it is, 
it is getting more competitive and we do get a lot of candidates. So it is, I guess, a strange middle ground, but at the end of the day, it's all just firefighting. We just get one extra cool aspect related yeah. to it. No, it's the same job, just a different taxi essentially. Yeah, that's just it. So nice. Man. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. So have you noticed any differences between like uh, the smoke jumping program in, or sorry, the Paratac program in Canada and how it's different from the United States kind of program? Yeah, a, a little bit. Like we, uh, we talk to those guys a fair bit. Like they help us out a lot, actually. There's a lot of different things. Um, there's a pretty cool back and forth going on. Um, they've transitioned to the Ram air canopy. So kind of a whole new different parachute system. We don't need to get into the technical differences, but, um, that's, so that's a difference. Um, we, they have less and less around parachute jumpers. We're on the, the round FS 14 still. And, uh, the systems are pros and cons, but, uh, ultimately at the end of the day, it's kind of technical differences and things are the same. All our training is still very much in line. Like it hasn't happened for a few years now, just given fire load and then lack of fire load. But when we do boost back and forth, uh, you know, they can plug in and come up here and we can plug in and get on their jump ships down there and get in their rotation and learn their system. So, um, there's a lot of similarities. We are still here in British Columbia kind of structured under the, the provincial IA model, which means we do actually have crews. We run three person crews for our jumper program. And then there's a handful of, uh, more and more these days, but yeah, we've got single resources as well. But, um, yeah, for the most part, our conventional initial attack configuration is with three person crews, which is quite different than the American kind of load list single resource model. So uh, you said three person uh, load list, like explain that a little bit more. Yeah. So we're still, we're still running um, a DC three, a nice Basler turbo DC three up here as well as a twin otter. So the three will hold four crews. So it'll be four instead of, you know, putting, well, we'll usually roll it with 13 jumpers, but those 13 jumpers will be four three person crews plus an IC three faller mentor okay. kind of floater. Um, as opposed to if like that same load in the States would just be 13 single resource jumpers and whoever went the door or went out the door first on an instant would be the JIC or jumper in charge. Oh, okay. I gotcha. Yeah. I just needed some clarification for that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Nuts and bolts are the same. Like smoke jumping has changed very little in the last 80 years. Like there's some, uh, some technological advancements as far as, um, yeah, you know, the Ram air system that the Americans are using, but overall, like it's, the nuts and bolts are the same as they were 80 years ago, which is pretty cool. Well, there's a lot of history and a lot of tradition involved with the entire smoke jumping program. Yeah. And it, it just, it works like it, uh, you know, we've had little modifications here and there, but overall it's pretty straightforward. Like we don't, we don't use smoke jumping for specialized access. We use it because airplanes are really fast and can get there cheaper and with a lot more gear and people. And, uh, until they figure out a way to land planes in the bush. The only way to get firefighters and equipment to the ground is with parachutes. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, it's pretty rudimentary and basic, but it, uh, it's very effective. It's pretty cool coming over. Like, you know, like anyone, when I got here, I didn't really understand it. I was here because it sounded like a lot of fun. I get to work with some really cool people and jump out of an airplane, but I've really grown to appreciate the kind of just the, uh, the efficiency and like even like the business side of it, where it actually does make a lot of sense the pros and cons like anything, but I think, uh, no, it's a pretty effective program and it's, it can be used really efficiently, which is cool to see when it's busy for sure. 
Oh yeah, man. Speed paid speed range and payload, man. That's what you guys got going for the uh, jump programs. That's for sure. <laughs> you got it. That's okay. it. Yeah. So, so you've been smoking, yeah. you've been smoke jumping for, you said seven years, you said. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And so what's cool about that is it's gotten you, it's opened up a lot of other doors to go do a lot of other cool stuff. So let's talk about that. I know, uh, you've done Dax over Normandy and I was fascinated by this. And I talked to Andrew, uh, down here, he was a guest on one of my shows and, uh, he got to go over there uh, with you guys. So tell us about that. That was pretty damn cool. Yeah, we were super lucky. That was just a, uh, you know, there's some application forms floating around the base and, uh, yeah, it was, you know, rare round parachute experience is pretty rare in the world as far as the military does it a little bit, but not, not a lot operationally these days. And even most military jumpers only have a handful or, you know, a dozen, couple dozen round parachute jumps. So, you know, a few smoke jumpers threw in on it and, um, I don't really know the rhyme or reason of the selection. It was a bit of a shit show overall over there, but, uh, you know, I got lucky enough to somehow slip through the cracks and get to go. And, uh, yeah, so two of us went from up here in BC and then we are, yeah, we were with Drew and a bunch of, a uh, bunch of beauties from all over the States from a few of the bases down there. Um, yeah, we, uh, originally we were in, uh, over in, uh, Duxford in, in the UK and the jump was in, uh, in uh, France there's a you know we could go down the rabbit hole with some stories about how that all went down but yeah at the end of the day um thanks to Drew kind of lining some things up we we ended up having a pretty fun jump over uh, a hangar in France in Normandy so it's pretty special kind of sunset three DC3s or C47s old converted piston planes or unconverted I guess uh with, you know, six to 10 going out the door, 30 jumpers in the air. It's pretty special. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It was the 75th Memorial jump for uh, Normandy, the Normandy invasion, right? Yeah, that's right. So they had like the whole spectacle related with it. They had uh, two or 300 round jumpers and a whole fleet of planes chucking them. And then, uh, oh, you know, like the, uh, the U.S. Army Golden Knights and the British Red Devils and a bunch of parachute teams were there. They actually had a couple out of the same hangar we were staged at in the U.K. They had uh, two veterans who actually jumped on D-Day, did tandem jumps back in the original drop zone. So that was uh, that, that was pretty incredible to see, just like see those guys wandering around and then watch the footage of them land in, in Normandy 75 years later. It uh, Yeah, the whole thing was pretty heavy as far as... Um, really makes you appreciate what a big deal that whole well that war and the history over there and how yeah it's a big deal and we all we grow up with it we know the history but until we were over there i certainly didn't appreciate it as much as i do now it's pretty cool pretty yeah. special chair for sure no that's pretty that's 100 unique and pretty damn cool and uh yeah I've, I've done a little bit of uh traveling through europe and that area and it's kind of cool to see the history behind that i mean there's still bullet holes and like bridges and stuff like that, man. There's little bomb damage and stuff. They'll have memorials everywhere. It's crazy. It's insane. Totally. And then just like you go through a park and there's like a memorial plaque to like, you know, the American, British and Canadian soldiers who were killed in that park. And yeah, there's uh, the history's everywhere. We don't really like, obviously our history is a little fresher and younger over here in North America. And yeah, just seeing something that, that widespread, an event that big that affected the entire countryside and for hundreds of kilometers around. It's pretty wild. It's pretty cool. Oh yeah. And that war. Yeah, I'd certainly recommend. 
Oh yeah, and that war it, it literally changed the course of human history. It did, yeah. It's uh yeah, I certainly kind of digging into the history a little bit since I got back. And yeah, it's uh <laughs> my opening stuff, it's incredible stories. And uh yeah, I think it's pretty important. Like the seventy fifth, they kinda of threw the kitchen sink at as far as the spectacle just because you know, the, there's only so many years left where there's going to be World War II survivors or veterans around. So it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, quite a place and a lot of history, pretty important and a lot more relevant to us over here than we think sometimes, or at least we forget that it is. It's easy to. Oh, yeah. No, it's cool, though. You guys got to uh, see some people that actually jump Normandy and get them to tandem jump again um, in the same LZ. That's pretty... That's that's special, man. Be a part of that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, there's a lot going on. Quite a few different jumps happening over there. It's funny. Like the original one we're supposed to do the, the Dax over Normandy event was a, uh, uh, it's supposed to be a cross channel jump. So flying out of the UK and jumping Normandy and they basically, again, in a bit of a shit show, but through a chain of unfortunate events, they, they had a few, aircraft lost just to mechanical issues. So not going down or anything, but just grounded. And, uh, you know, on the day of that jump, they gathered oh, probably four or 500 of us in a hangar with all the spectators and everyone around and basically just said, Hey guys, we've got 206 guys on the manifests, but, uh, 20 of them, we don't, we got to drop 20 people because we've lost a handful of planes. So we did a pretty high stakes kind of lottery raffle. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, you know, 20 out of 206 is a 9.8% chance of getting drawn. And yeah, I got really lucky and my name was drawn. So I actually got bumped up off of that load, which, um, the load at the time that was, uh, it was the Miss Montana, which is actually the plane that dropped. You're probably familiar with it, but it dropped the jumpers on the man Gulch fire. So for anyone who's not familiar, familiar with that incident, especially if you're in the fire world, you should probably do some Googling and look up the man Gulch fire. But, uh, yeah, so there's a bunch of American smoke jumpers and some U.S. military guys. And a couple of us got bumped off that load. And I ended up taking a ferry over to Normandy instead. Um, again, Drew, through his contacts and some other American jumpers over there, checked out another demo. So that's the jump I ended up getting to do. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot going on over there. It's a bit of a roller coaster the whole way through. It was, it was quite the week, but just really awesome overall. No, that's awesome, man. That's definitely cool, man. Uh, yeah, like I said, super unique perspective and super cool opportunity to go over there and participate in that. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. And yeah, they do they do some sort of um, they have parachute jumps over there every year. So I think anyone who has like sport parachute experience or well, you're going to need round experience to do those jumps. But uh, yeah, it's, it's accessible. Like people can look into it and go do it if they're super interested. So it's, uh, it's not just a one-time thing. There is an opportunity to do it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of an annual thing that they just do. The bars kind of uh, adapt to it and the tourism industry picks up for that week. So it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a good time. Nice, man. You plan on going over there again and doing it? Uh, I don't know. I'd go over with a white group friend or with a like right group of friends, but uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, we'll see. There's lots of things on the list, and <laughs> you can't do it all again. But uh, yeah, I would I would consider it for sure. Another anniversary, or maybe a group of friends going over. But yeah, we'll see. Nice man. So you've done the Normandy thing. You went to go do the uh, 75th Memorial Jump over Normandy, and you also got to go to South Africa and help 
do some training development, some photography and some anti-poaching stuff down there too, as well, which is pretty damn cool. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So that was kind of a, a crazy trip. Um, that, uh, I don't even know where to begin with that one, but it was kind of, again, just opportunities that come up and people you meet and just following up on them. Um, yeah, I ended up spending oh, a little over two weeks with a hotshot crew over there. So they have, a, what they would consider a type one hotshot crew, um, that, uh, you know, as they'll tell you, like by North American standards, we probably wouldn't classify them as type one, although it'd be pretty cool to see them move in that direction because the caliber of people and the guys I got to work with over there, they certainly have all the kind of raw materials, like the, the right people, the right culture, the pride, the fitness, like everything else blown away by those guys. But yeah, I spent a few weeks with them and then um, a few weeks with uh, like a counter poaching unit, um, just... Yeah, I don't know where to begin with it. It was uh, the poaching thing actually came up first. Uh, so I was teaching a stock course here in BC and one of the students, kind of long story, but he had connections over there. He was like a, a dangerous game guide. You know, South African parents grew up here, but spent a lot of time over there and basically got talking with him and he just told me about this work and I kind of I, I looked into it a bit more and um just chatting with him basically like I've, I've always taken photos and do some photography work so i kind of through him made arrangements to go visit actually his girlfriend at the time or his girlfriend currently still but she runs a uh <laughs> she's probably one of the most badass people i've ever met but she runs a uh it's like an anti-poaching canine unit so they will uh respond to poaching incursions in the kruger national parking area with an a-star so basically counter poaching hail attack where they'll, they'll load the hounds into this a-star and they'll um fly and then follow up on the ground with armed militia and the dogs and uh a lot of just, you know, dogs is a whole other rabbit hole we could go down, but a lot of my photography portfolio relates to dogs and working dogs. I kind of, you know, family friends and my uncle on the ranch and his working dogs and police dogs. And I've been lucky enough to do some shoots like that. So it, I was like, basically I arranged to uh, go over and visit them to take a look at that. And uh, that came up. So that was kind of in the works like South Africa had been roughed out. And then, um, another guy who's become a good friend. You're probably, you're going to have to get him on the show, but uh, Harrison, uh, he kind of approached me out of the blue, uh, just on Instagram, I guess. And he wanted to ask me some questions about that smoky generation project and him and I, he ended up coming to McKenzie, hanging here for a few days. We really hit it off and he was doing, I'll, I'll, like I said, you should get him on the show. I'll let him fill you in on it, but he had a really cool project kind of through his, uh, through university, um, he won a, a fellowship to uh, study wildfire on an international scale. So he was traveling around the world as part of his stop in McKenzie. And uh, South Africa came up. And um, I told him I was looking at going to, and it just kind of snowballed from there. He put me in touch with some people. Uh, Dean at NCC, who another incredible person I was lucky enough to work with. Um, we started going back and forth and kind of came up with a project to help showcase that uh, firefighters are basically, firefighting is basically meaningful, important work because it, uh, it, was, it was crazy talking to him in that 
he, he kind of opened with one of the main issues they face over there is that firefighting is viewed as unskilled labor. So it's hard for them to pay them competitively. It's hard for them to get funding and training and all these things like, that are looked at as like glorified landscapers, essentially. That and, sentiment um, is definitely reflected down here. Oh man. Isn't it crazy? It's, it's universal. Yeah. So and I just laugh because that's kind of tied into essentially along the same lines of what my smoky generation project was on. And, uh, we started going off. So we came up with um, a project basically focused on, on helping demonstrate that firefighting is important, valuable work. And uh, so it was, I went over there, arranged to go with him to kind of just, you know, roll with the hotshot crew and take photos and help with that. But then also kind of, you know, do some training and mentorship for them as far as helping them. Like they do use ICS, but basically just helping to bridge the gap because uh, the other thing we're all seeing over the last few years with Australia and the States and, you know, Spain, Portugal, Chile, like all over the world is like, it really is all the same shit. Yeah. Like, you know, there's different fuel types, different terrain, different nuances, different political considerations. It goes on and on and on, but the meat and bones of it, like firefighting and boots on the ground, firefighting is very comparable no matter where you are. So yeah, the fundamentals pretty much relatively remain. the Yeah. Same. So it is. And it's like, it's one of those things that, you know, kind of the last hundred years, any other job, really, we've been able to get rid of most of the risk through technology or administration, or just we've been able to make a lot of that stuff obsolete, but firefighting, we haven't solved that. Like we still need boots on the ground firefighters doing hard, dangerous, highly skilled, high risk work that involves not just the decision-making and poise and leadership and, you know, strategy and tactics, but then also real like physical ability and, and risk. And that's pretty rare. And it's pretty special. And, uh, it was exactly the same over there in South Africa as it was here, as far as that's concerned. Like again, lots of differences, of course, but I would honestly say more similarities than differences. That's awesome, man. And now as far as like the training and everything goes, like what were you training them on just general mentorship or, yeah. So it was like a bit of a way, it was like, it was a bit of an initial kind of experiment. Right. But yeah, uh, we did a bit of leadership training. Um, chainsaw is something I think, uh, I, I would love to get back there to help them kind of on the chainsaw side. Like they don't, you know, it's not British Columbia or Oregon or, you know, the States, they're not dropping trees even really, but as far as just brushing going direct, like, uh, I think there's a lot of, room with some proper chainsaw training they could really step up their capabilities and they, they do have saws and they do use them but i think it's just kind of helping bring that aspect um but yeah so it was it was a bit of that it, it's hard to say a lot it was like an exchange style right so just bouncing ideas off talking sharing things that work there versus work here or learning things that work there i should say and just kind of getting a feel for things but um yeah, we, uh, you know, Harrison, he was over there quite a bit longer than I was. And he got really involved with a lot of the basics, even just as far as like hand tool sharpening techniques and things like that. Um, brought a lot of the kind of rapid lesson sharing and that stuff over. Like I was actually really impressed with their morning briefings. Um, they're really comprehensive, super dialed, like just like you'd see on any base I've been at. And, uh, but you know, kind of sharing some of the ways we do it in, uh, in Canada and the United States with Harrison and, um, and then, but other than that, basically just rolling with them, getting to know them and helping out where I could. 
So it was a bit of an interesting one kind of balancing that with taking photos, but uh, we, we ended up having a, a pretty crazy fire. Like we were out on the line for oh, probably 30 some hours, like a 41 shift all in kind of one of the wildest fires I've been on as far as they dropped us off in this place called the Cedarburg Wilderness Area, which is this kind of incredibly gorgeous, remote, semi-arid desert, I guess, but with some pretty significant uh, biodiversity values at risk. And uh, yeah, they dropped us off and basically said, we'll try to check on you in 24 hours. So no comms, no sat phone or anything, working <laughs> through the night and like pretty rugged terrain. Uh, you know, we had water in a river that was our water source was a river at the bottom which they assured us is clean which is like a you know it's a real thing in africa like you, you realize pretty quickly you're not at home and you don't have the same safety checks and balances um just not being able to call for comms at all there's like you know cobras and different kinds of snakes and scorpions and it's pretty gnarly out there the fire behavior itself too like the way they go they wear flash hoods um and then big things fully covered up basically and then eight foot beaters and they basically go hand to hand combat with the fire so we had probably you know a good six to eight foot flame lengths at times and the boys are just standing there in front of it just smacking it and trying to knock it down so as far as like kind of fitness and grit and just capability those guys absolutely blew me away and then um but i think I think they could really take their game to the next level with some different tactics and stuff too. So yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity over there and uh, some really incredible people all around like uh, from the management side over there with the organization I was with. And then um, with, uh, yeah, the crews themselves, the crews are incredible. That's wild, man. And now, so their crews, they're, they're basically just going direct on everything pretty much. And it's not like they, it's not like, I guess it's not like they have like uh, specialized services or do they, do they have like hell attack crews? Do they have anything else like that? They do like South Africa is a really interesting place because it's probably closer than like, you know, people hear Africa and they think of a lot of the stereotypes of Africa, but in a lot of ways, South Africa is closer to like Australia or even Canada. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this, this weird blend of the boat. Um, so they do, they have like, you know, the NCC crews are, 20 person type one hotshot crews and the, you know, hotshot buggy chainsaws, like whole nine yards, quite comparable to over here. And then they do, they've got the VWS, the volunteer, uh, wildfire services, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, but it pretty, pretty serious organization. Like they, they're well-trained, passionate people, um, not full-time like the NCC guys, but they are, you know, got a lot of culture, some good people. Um, another, uh, organization over there, Vulcan Wildfire Services with Patrick Ryan. He's a guy doing some incredible work over there. And he's actually just won one of these mystery grants or uh, Smoky Generation grants as well. So he, you'll see more and more of his work and they're doing some cool stuff. Um, they've got, a, they, like, they'll have mediums on contract for Hell Attack. They've got a Blackhawk that they'll pull in now and then. So yeah, it's, uh, certainly different. Like they don't really use pump and hose show as much as we do in Canada, but probably more like you guys in States just going, they, they do go direct on everything the way the vegetation burns over there. It's a little more conducive to that, but uh, yeah, it's, it's quite similar. I gotcha. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's uh it's a different thing to like kind of think about because we don't know, you know, there's not a lot of news about how South African uh, firefighting crews fight fire. And judging from your pictures, the fuel type seems like it's uh, 
like a SoCal kind of scrub brush almost like at least the places that you were at. No, that's exactly it. Like, uh, yeah, Cape town in the area, um, is, uh, they compare it quite a bit to, yeah, exactly. San Diego is the analogy that gets used a lot. That's exactly it. Like the proteas, um, some of the different vegetation is, uh, it's pretty unique to over there, but burning characteristics, terrain, landscape, winds, like the wind over there is, is unbelievable. Like we get some, I've lived in some windy places in Canada, but the wind over there off the, uh, you know, it's the Southern point of Africa. It's, uh, it gets windy. The base, the guys told me that, uh, the base we're at, it's, uh, you know, absolutely butcher pronunciation and South Africans are going to laugh, but very uh, is, uh, they call it the place where the wind was born <laughs> and, uh, it, it lived up to that. So yeah, they, it, it's pretty crazy, I guess, just fire, dynamic over there in that they have all this scrubland and kind of um like you know mountainous terrain but it's also it's urban interface like so much of it is urban interface where you know table Na- or table mountain national park is right on the outskirts of cape town so you got this beautiful national park with everything you'd associate with a national park and then a major city and everything in between and you add in like the informal settlements or the townships and like a lot of the poverty in certain areas and yeah, it's uh, there's a lot going on over there as far as fighting fire. Like they do get lightning starts, but they also the fire we were on the origin of the briefing they told us was baboons, <laughs> baboons throwing rocks at each other sparked a wildfire in the middle of nowhere. You've got to be kidding me! No, man, I was it was trippy. It's super trippy. We we're also when we were rolling there, we had about a four hour drive in the buggy, and I looked out the window and there was an ostrich in the ditch, and I just started laughing like. <laughs> where the fuck am I? What is going on here? Like, it's just like, yeah. And we, you know, we roll into this little town and it was, it was crazy. It was pretty surreal. It was like a little scene out of only the brave where we come into this community and everyone's out in the streets, like kind of looking up at the Hills and there's this giant column, like leaning over the town and we go to the ICP and it's in this like nice hotel and buzzing with people running around and they gave us the briefing and then, you know, classic firefighting, hurry up and wait. We hung out in a rugby stadium for about four or five hours in theory, waiting for the Blackhawk to bump us in and it, uh, <laughs> plans changed as they do. And we ended up going in overland. Um, it was like about a three hour bushwhack in the back of land cruisers, like land cruisers and Toyota Bakis as they call them, like just, pickup trucks basically with it was uh yeah it was crazy and then we, we you know we get to the line probably about 2100 and had a few kilometer hike or a couple mile hike to the fire and then it was like going direct with hand tools until about nine o'clock the next morning um yeah coldest got overnight taking weather every hour is 31 degrees and then you know by 10 the next day it was about 43 degrees again and you're kind of sitting there like drinking water from the river and trying not to think about what that means or might mean, even though they've heard you as clean. And then <laughs> really, really hoping that they actually come pick you up. Like they say, they're going to that night. So, and they did. And we, you know, had another couple hour drive out in the Bakis back to our hot shop buggy and piled in and drove home four hours. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. They, they just go hard. Like the, the way their shifts are is, Typically they go on a fire, they'll work at least 24 hours and then sleep and then, you know, another girl backfill them and hammer it too. And they just alternate like that. So different to how we do it up here, but certainly, uh, certainly not, certainly not for the faint of heart is I guess the way to put it. Like those guys work hard. God, it sounds like you're in a different world almost, man. That's crazy. 
Yeah, totally. So what so, about like the wild game, like the dangerous game? Do you like encounter any cats or anything like that? Or is that going to be in a different location or? Yeah. So the, the Cedarburg wilderness where we were like, because Cape Town's so urban, like they do have, you know, baboons and, and, uh, snakes, um, spiders, scorpions, that kind of stuff. And then certainly we've got a few good days surfing, certainly sharks in that whole area. Um, Cape Town's pretty known for its great whites, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah. And then like, there were leopards in the Cedarburg wilderness area, but there, uh, we didn't see any, not really an issue there. That was, uh, kind of when I was at the counter poking you know I saw wildlife a lot of wildlife on those or during that time. And that's another dangerous thing in itself because these poachers are oftentimes armed and it's a dangerous situation that you're placing yourself into just for documenting. I mean that's that's wild, dude. Like tell us about that. Yeah, so that was um, you know, kind of the other side of the country. So flew into Johannesburg and then had like, you know, a nice little a little road trip up north and then i was at uh so at a private game reserve so i don't know it'd be like think about one of our national parks but if you were allowed to buy giant mansions and then kind of go on safari driving around looking at the elk and stuff it's like that's the kind of the deal but they have um you know they have armed anti-poaching units so our guys the ones we were working with were uh you know, most of them are, well, I shouldn't say most of them, the lieutenants and sergeants are ex-military, ex-South African Defense Force, Special Forces. And, um, yeah, and it, it was kind of crazy how well that tied in with the firefighting. Like, same thing, like, guys doing really dangerous work, but it's viewed as unskilled and they're not paid as well as they probably should be and taking real risks. But uh, that's a whole other vein we could go down. But, yeah, basically... Yeah, rhino poaching over there is no joke. I think South Africa, before COVID, who knows what's happening now, but was losing eight rhinos a day on average. Holy shit. And like rhino, rhino horn is uh, by weight the most valuable commodity on earth. And uh, so, you know, you get these impoverished areas with these people who don't have a lot of opportunities or jobs or whatever. And then there's rhino horn, which is worth, you know, you can in a place where people might make 300 bucks a month doing jobs, uh, for just giving poachers a tip off, you might get $10,000 for that. So like they're poaching them quite aggressively. And, uh, it's basically like a lot of those places are full on combat zones. So they're like the guys I worked with, like they're all, you know, they've all got their stories. They've lost friends and they've, you know, they've, how do you put it nicely, but they've, uh, poachers have been lost too. I guess I will put it. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, just kind of a full on the little counter military operation they have going there. So kind of doing patrols along the national park boundary and the game reserve boundaries. And you do foot patrols and you're out there basically it feels like Jurassic park where you're like on foot and you'll run into, uh, we saw all sorts of stuff. There's stories for days about the wildlife, but, uh, yeah, like, you know, the big fiber there, we saw rhino, lions, leopard, um, elephant, hyena, impala, giraffes, and you name it, hippos. And uh, so those guys are out there kind of navigating these bush. They're like these bush areas, and they're watching out for wildlife. And then they're also watching out for armed poachers. And they do have, you know, contacts, and they do have firefights. And, yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's a heavy world over there too. Those guys, 
pretty impressive. They do a lot of work for, for what they're paid and it's a pretty noble cause. And yeah, that's a whole, whole other thing. I think there's a lot of opportunity. It's pretty amazing how much it ties in with the fire like in terms of even just things like chain of command and the response and you're working in the bush and a lot of it is labor but when it's go time it's really go time and yeah it's uh it's quite an experience for sure dude talk about an underappreciated job i mean some of the wildlife is arguably some of the most precious resources on the planet especially these endangered species totally and they're like yeah it's trippy because in like, like it, to see those wildlife like to, to be in the game reserves or from Kruger National Park or all these places, like it, it is quite privileged, right? So unless you're working there, um, you don't really get to see this stuff. So the rangers obviously have an appreciation for it, but but even for them, for a lot of them, it's a job. And uh, like, you know, they're there because they need to support their family. Um, some of them are super passionate about conservation, but um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's some people doing really cool work over there in that field. Um, basically trying to solve that and it again parallels with fire like a lot of it is essentially prevention and outreach you can call it so it's like um matt lindenberg is another guy i was fortunate enough to meet over there and he um he's got a really cool organization he's got a few organizations going on but looking at you know equipping rangers and training them and providing them with things they need to do that job but then also visiting the local school and trying to educate kids while they're young on the importance of conservation and why we need these wild places and why these wild animals. And then also, you know, you can have this small little community on the outskirts of a park and these people may have never seen any of this wildlife they're being told is important. So just like sharing that with them has a lot of power too. like getting them. It's easy to say that rhino poaching is bad, but if you've never seen a rhino and you just know that, you can feed your family by doing it. Like, how are you ever going to win that? So it is, it's uh, the prevention aspect to parallel with fire is is pretty crazy there. Like the parallels between counter poaching and wildfire really blew my mind. And I think there's a, there's a lot of threads that can be pulled on there. That's wild, man. Did you have to be armed while you're over there? Uh, no, I was like a non, like I wasn't South African. So I was, uh, the only unarmed person on these walks and on these drives. So I had my camera. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But no, the guy I was with, uh, Henry, you can't say enough good things about him. And he, uh, the guy who kind of been my initial contact, he, he was, uh, back over there kind of supervising the counter poacher operation. So I was with him a lot and, uh, yeah, he certainly kind of held my hand through a lot of stuff and watching, watching that guy operate and do what he does out there. It's like watching like a surfer get barreled. Like it's just like someone totally in tune with what they're doing and doing gnarly shit, but like knows the seams and knows how you can safely, you know, walk between these Buffalo and these lions or all these crazy things. Like, yeah, I, uh, I had good guides is I guess the way to put it. I certainly certainly couldn't have done it without that. And yeah, I was kind of helpless. The one guy without a weapon, but I felt like I was in good hands for sure. No, it's pretty wild to place yourself in a very hazardous situation where pretty much everything wants to kill you, (laughs) the wildlife and potentially the people. Yeah, but it's weird. Like, yeah, yeah, it did. (laughs) I was aware of that, but honestly it felt like fire. Like, you know how it is? Like, it's like, you realize what you're doing is potentially pretty gnarly, but you just kind of deal with it as it comes up and hope for the best. And I don't know, I think it, uh, 
It, I mean, it certainly was. There were risks, but we managed them as best we could. And yeah, honestly, it felt like firefighting. That's wild, man. No, it's cr- it's just crazy. It's baffling to me to like hear this story, and it kind of interests me as well. I mean, I, I wish I could do this kind of stuff, man. I'm pretty sure the opportunity is out there. I just don't know how to do it. Yeah, totally. I think that's. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, you said it. The opportunities are out there. It's just getting out there and talking to people and and uh, chasing down the right leads. Yeah, if you're if you're ever interested in going over there i can certainly give you some tips and put you in touch with some people and uh you know the fire thing certainly helped me because i think they were a lot more willing to let someone who i guess was willing to accept and handle his own risks and basically even just being able to physically keep up like that was no joke as far as on the fire line especially but even with the rangers like you can't slow those guys down you can't have a blister and not be able to like get back to the truck or any of these things you 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 need to be able to go without water for a few hours, like all that stuff. So fire certainly uh, gave me a big head start as far as being able to participate in that. Yeah. Being able to handle an austere environment definitely probably is working in your favor. Yeah, totally. So, so tell us about your smoke generation project. Yeah. So that was, uh, it's funny because I think that, had a lot to do with all these things kind of coming together but uh yeah basically that's uh i'm sure your listeners are semi-familiar at least but it's a really cool kind of initiative bethany has going on with that um but yeah basically i won one of the micro grants last year so 2019 like that kind of been in inaugural and my whole i guess project it was basically that uh firefighting is about the people so it's kind of no matter how much policy we change or technology we introduce or whatever prevention programs we put into place. Like at the end of the day, like firefighting is going to be lost and won based on the competence of the people involved. So whether that's like good boots on the ground firefighters up to like the, the IC or overhead team, like the people at every level there need to be competent and not only competent know what they're doing, but they need to be able to communicate and work together. And that's like, it's going to be a pretty tall order. And we've all, any of us who've been on fires know that that's kind of the, it's rare. Like it really is rare for the machine to be moving as a well-oiled machine. And I think that um, to kind of achieve those things and uh, make it so we're ready for these gnarly fire seasons upcoming or these dead ones like we have now, um, we just need to really value and kind of develop and retain people at all levels. So it's got to be attainable for someone who wants to be a 10 year crew member to just, you know, swing a Pulaski and uh, run a chainsaw and do their thing and still go home every night and be able to be comfortable, sustainably, not depending on what the weather's doing. And then we also need to give people training opportunities. We need to develop them and we need to recognize that they're not just, it's not just pawns. Like, you know, interchangeable summer students. It's like, no, no, there actually is skill and merit and experience and knowledge involved. And it's really critical for it to work. Oh yeah, man. Well, that's the thing is they, at the end of the day, we're professionals, but we're not treated as such, unfortunately. Yeah, that's actually it. That's exactly it. And like BC's gotten, BC's come a long way. Like there's some pretty exciting things happening here in BC right now on that front. And, uh, which is really cool to see. I mean, there's still a lot of room for improvement, of course, but, uh, I think overall it is at least being recognized and acknowledged and for the, you know, kind of 
the reward and all that other stuff to catch up is going to take some time, obviously, but it is, it is nice to see that. And, uh, yeah, and I know depending on who you talk to in the States, some people say things are moving in the right direction and some people say it's not, but, um, yeah, I think overall it's just becoming obvious, like, cause it isn't, it's also, it's not blind monkey work or blind labor. Like you need to, there's a lot to it. <laughs> like as far as it's not just suppression either. It's not just like action hero, like put out the fire. It's like, you gotta know when to let it burn. You gotta know how to manage, like all the fire land use is enormous too. And unfortunately you can't really realistically use fire unless you've been around it and know how to use it. So there's a lot of, it's, we need masters basically. You can't just develop someone in like three or four years or 10 years or 15 years. You need like, you need masters. Oh, absolutely. But so. Yeah. It's, it's just wild though, because that sentiment, it seems like from your experience, it seems like it's pretty much shared across the world as far yeah, as recognition as professionals. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. It's uh no, I think it's getting there. Like I think anyone, like, I think I was got to work with people like whether directly or, you know, just meeting them places, but I've got to talk and email and meet a lot of really cool people from agencies all over the world. And there's a lot of really passionate switched on people doing it. It's pretty, uh, pretty special place to be. And like, we, we do need those people. And then it's interesting. Like the flip side is a season like this, like it can't, it can't all be suppression or wildfire. Like you need to, you need to keep these people meaningfully engaged even when it's slow. So there is like a lot of opportunity for community projects or outreach or training and development. Like there's, it's a talented workforce that you got to kind of, we got to figure out how to use it appropriately at all times, which is a tall order. But I think there's a lot of people working on that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I know there's a big push here, uh, at least in the United States for uh, basically making a national wildland firefighting service. Oh yeah. So I haven't heard anything about that, but just kind of, yeah. Cause I know that's a, a thing on fires in the States is just the multi-agency kind of headbutting and uncertainties and disagreements. Like, yeah, I could see there being some room to unify that a little bit. I think it'd be a good thing though. I mean, it's not going to be without its problems, of course, but if you're to separate true land management from, you know, wildland fire suppression and mitigation, I think uh, it might benefit the actual employee. Totally. Yeah. And you know, it's like, it's hard, you know, if things get too big and clunky and bureaucratic, I could certainly see that being an issue too, especially with, well, Canada is the same way, but you guys particularly are incredibly diverse and spread all over and different, you know, geopolitical considerations or fuel types or seasons. Like it's crazy how diverse wildland fires in the States. It's definitely crazy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those big problems that no one person has the answer to, of course, but, uh, hopefully we can make some leeway and make a push to, you know, empower and better the lives of firefighters, you know, across the, across the globe. That's yeah, yeah, that'd be an ultimate goal, I guess. Yeah. So, and I think, uh, yeah, for sure. We, we need it to be sustainable. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a flip side too, because there is that aspect of fire that is, you know, people can get in and kind of coast on like a slow season or a slow crew and not really do a lot of work. And I think unfortunately that does attract some of the people who perpetuate those negative stereotypes. And it's just like unskilled seasonal students who don't really give a shit and are just like there because the job is waiting a lot of the time. So I think it is, um, 
yeah, you, you got to give people work to do and then reward them for the work. And we're lucky, like that's pretty inherent in smoke jumping just because, you know, we have that whole other aspect of our business that keeps us busy all the time from like selling our junk gear and parachutes and just the technical side. But yeah, we've also here this year, like there's been a big push for recreation development in BC and, you know, we have a workforce that has that skill set. So we've had people out there building trails for the community and, you know, clearing parks and stuff. And that's been really, really cool to see too. Like there is, yeah, we need to, we need to use firefighters appropriately. And then, and then we also need to find ways to reward them for it. And I think we are getting there here, but it will be cool to see how much further we can take it. Yeah. We'll see where it goes. Hopefully it'll, uh, hopefully it'll happen. At least the time we're alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Oh man. Yeah. So what do you got next? Like, what do you got? Uh, what are you going to plan on doing next here? I mean, you've got, you're a busy dude. You're a smoke jumper. You've been all over the world fighting fire and documenting some really cool shit. So what's your next plan? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, next plan is I'm certainly focused still, you know, my day job is, is still uh, kind of my priority, obviously like smoke jumping kind of is, I put that, well, besides like family and my fiance and dogs and stuff like that is my main focus. Um, this winter though, I, I'm really hoping to get back to South Africa and kind of, you know, that, take that whole project to the next phase. Um, we're working on some kind of uh, local en- engagement and community forest practice kind of promotion and exploration ideas here and uh, like locally in BC. And I think we can tie some of it in with some of the South African stuff. So we'll hopefully be connecting some of those dots and getting back over there with uh, some of the the friends I've been fortunate enough to meet and some of the firefighters I've been fortunate enough to meet. So idea, ideally we would get back over there with um, a small group of people and kind of do some more on those fronts. And then, uh, who knows? Oh man, like COVID's a weird thing right now. So yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I'm yeah. so over the COVID crap, man. Uh, I just want it to be over. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah. Who knows, but going to take it as it goes. I think it'll hopefully get man. Just, you know, it's going to be extra hoops to jump through and extra, uh, just an extra thing to deal with. It'll be ways, but yeah. yeah adapt yeah, and overcome. We'll yeah, for sure. Nice, man. Well, yeah, dude, that's a hell of a story that you've got going on here. And uh, yeah, it's getting to about a, about an hour for the show. So yeah, where can we find you? Uh, yeah, good question. I've got, I got some work out there. If you look around, you'll see it here and there. I've written some articles and stuff. Um, hoping to... Uh, uh, Lucas at Mystery Ranch has been awesome to work with lately on some of the gear they're developing. He's a rad dude. Jumping side. Yeah, so I'm excited to... Uh, you know, kind of see where that goes a little bit more, but yeah, for now, probably just my Instagram's easiest. So you put that in the show notes. Um, I've been pretty slack on it. I don't post as much on there as I should, but I'll be trickling some projects out over here as I have, you know, if this rain continues, that's going to help, but otherwise it'll probably be more fall and winter projects to finish sifting and compiling these little projects I've been working on over the last year. So nice, man. Well, yeah. And, uh, that's GS Jonesy on the old Instagram, right? Yeah, you got it. So yeah, and people can, uh, you know, I've been getting lots of questions about South Africa or our application process for jumping here in BC. But yeah, people can hit me up anytime on there. And I usually get back within a couple of days if I'm around. So for sure, man. Now, uh, definitely put some uh, links in the show notes to your articles and all the other cool stuff that you're involved with, man. It's pretty unique. 
Awesome. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I know it's been, we've been talking about it for six months, but it was great to finally, finally get on here and have a chat. It was awesome. Hell yeah. It's always a pleasure. Um, so yeah. at the end of the show, I like to uh, give you an opportunity to give a shout out to a homie hero mentor. Who do you got for us? Oh, hero mentor. Ooh, I couldn't narrow it down. There's been so many people lately. Um, I guess certainly both Harrison and Henry can't thank them enough for everything over there in South Africa, Dean, the agency, and then, uh, justice, Justin Sullivan, uh, Patrick Ryan, a bunch of those guys on, on the South African side who you'll, you'll be seeing more of their work too, through the smoky generation stuff. Um, yeah, man, I could go on and on. I'm going to forget people if I get too specific, but yeah, everyone I get to work with, I'm super lucky in that, uh, kind of my projects inside and outside of work and then at work, my, the people kind of above me and below me, it's nothing but great people. So really fortunate just to, I guess the whole fire community and everything, everyone I've met along the way and same with, uh, you know, got to say hi to, to, to Fuentes and Shane and Drew down there in, in the States too. So yeah. Right on, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, yeah, I'm sure you're going to have more exciting stuff to come along and uh, share your story. So we'll probably get you on the show again. Yeah, that sounds great, man. You have a good day. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Right on, man. Take care. Later. All right, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with our good friend, Greg Jones. Greg, dude, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your worldwide experience, man. That's pretty damn cool. And uh, giving us a little bit of an insight into the Canadian Smoke Jumper program. Yeah, man, that's a, a pretty interesting thing, especially being embedded with that anti-poaching task force uh, down there in South Africa. That is pretty wild stuff, man. And uh, yeah, we definitely look forward to seeing what you got coming on next. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can get you back on the show. And for the rest of you, hope you guys are doing well. I uh, hope you guys are ready for hiring season. Uh, make sure you guys listen to our previous episodes about hiring because hiring season is fast approaching, if not already on top of us. So get your stuff dialed in and start applying. Best of luck to everybody. And for our sponsors, want to give a special shout out to Manscaped. Use code AnchorPoint at checkout site-wide for 20% off and free shipping. Oh yeah, your balls will thank you. We got Hotshot Brewery purveyors of the best damn coffee on the west coast we got mystery ranch most kick-ass packs out there in the game and much much more looking forward to that backbone series that's coming out here we got the ass movement booze dude thank you so much for doing what you're doing and uh yeah let's all do our part and uh raise some awareness for the tissue issue and trash on our public lands and last but not least we have got the smoky generation bethany you got an awesome organization out there definitely keep it up for the rest of you guys uh, if you guys want to stop by and drop a review on our itunes would be much appreciated other than that hope you guys stay savage stay safe peace we'll see you on the next one